You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Following our one-on-one interview with Beijing Bureau Chief Anna Fifield about her new book, The Great Successor, a group of experts sat down to talk about the current state of affairs in the U.S.-North Korea relationship. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Michael Duffy, Deputy Op Editor here at The Post. And I'm joined with a great panel to now build on that amazing conversation with Anne. Um, David McNamara, who is the uh, White House reporter for The Post, Carol Morello, diplomatic correspondent, and Victor Cha, who holds the Korea chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you all for being here this morning. It's been an amazing couple of days with respect to North Korea, as David was saying, uh, but also quite uh, a year since, as Doug noted at the top, since the summit in Singapore. Could you talk to us a little bit, Victor, about just how uh, things have progressed in the last year, particularly with the uh, firing of the short-range missiles and what this portends uh, as we go forward for possible negotiation uh, toward denuclearization? Sure. Um, Well, it's really been a roller coaster ride, I think. Um, This started out, as some of you may remember, in 2017 when uh, North Korea conducted 20 ballistic missile tests in the first 12 months, 11 months of the Trump administration. Just by comparison, during the eight years of the Obama administration, the North Koreans did an average of maybe six missile tests a year. So 20 in 11 months was quite a bit. And uh, the two leaders were hurling insults at each other and calling each other names and things. And you know, I, I, I think people thought we were headed down a very bad path. Uh, and then we see this sudden, sudden turnaround of diplomacy in 2018 that has that has went through the Singapore summit and then ground to a halt in Hanoi and now it looks like North Korea is back to its old behavior which is starting to fire more missiles <clears throat> I mean I think the president has been continues to maintain optimism in terms of the prospects for diplomacy um, even if there is a third summit which he's already said he wants Um, It's not clear if any agreements can be reached without some serious working level negotiations. Um, You know, I did the last set of negotiations in the six party talks and we spent days, weeks, months, years negotiating the the smaller deals, the preliminary agreements uh, before even considering any sort of higher level meeting. And so that's the piece that's missing right now, I think, in, in the diplomacy and it's all been sort of subsumed by Trump's desire just to handle everything at the top, which we have seen doesn't work. Do you think the short-range tests were a provocation that take you, uh, take us away from negotiation or, negotiation or maybe toward it? <laughs> it's a great question. So I think, um, uh, so putting my social scientist hat on, um, uh, North Korea does do provocations every time negotiations with the United States break down, usually within a period of six months. And then it takes us about two and a half to three months to re-engage once they do those, once they do those tests. This is over, this is data going back 25 years. So there is a pattern here. Um, And so, uh, but what what they have not done is the long range test or another large um, nuclear demonstration, which may be a sign of self-restraint on their part. Uh, And at the same time, Trump is saying, And, uh, you know, these short-range tests don't matter. Of course, they do matter, but he's saying they don't matter. Again, another effort at self-restraint. Carol, there's been some confusion inside the administration about what these short-term, short-range tests mean, with John Bolton at the National Security Council saying these were definitely a breach of what the UN had agreed to before, and the president saying 
Well, no, this isn't something that uh, I consider to be a breach with, um, in my understanding of what uh, I've discussed with Kim Jong-un. Uh, help us understand the confusion. Well, I think a lot of what's going on is sort of negotiating away from the table. You know, since Hanoi, uh, there really have not been many formal talks going on, uh, although they are apparently having some low-level talks about having a third summit. Uh, but just as North Korea conducts some missile tests, they make them short-range, not intermediate-range. Uh, they insult... Mike Pompeo and say he should be withdrawn from the negotiations and they and they say they never expected anything reasonable to come out of the mouth of John Bolton but they write beautiful love letters to President Trump and so I think that it would be unfair to assume that the United States would start scurrying because of that you know the United States keeps its sanctions up and doubles down on it it uh, seizes a North Korea cargo ship, but there's no sign that the United States is really changing its strategy. And so North Korea would like the U.S. to completely change its attitude and instead of insisting on what it considers the U.S. demand for unilateral disarmament, would be willing to consider some sanctions relief and maybe a pullback in what, it, what kind of disarmament it's requiring. So that is kind of what we're seeing is this negotiating in public and both sides are sending conflicting signals. And we're going to see how that works. And in an odd way, I think that the administration has reverted to the Obama era policy of strategic patience. Uh, since the Hanoi summit collapsed, I think that they are basically trying to keep the door open to another summit to, for negotiations to resume, and they are sitting waiting semi-patiently for North Korea to do something reciprocal. David, t talk to us a little bit about what happened in Hanoi. <laughs> Just what, what happened? Well, I think what you saw was, as Victor said, usually typically before a major summit between any leaders, but especially two countries that don't have a great uh, history of deep communications, to say the least, uh, you'd have a lot of legwork being done by actual diplomats, subject experts, and the U.S. sent a team over before Hanoi, which, uh, if you recall, the president announced there would be a second summit, or his interest in one, uh, in a, with a very short time window, uh, early in the year, uh, that he wanted to do this. Uh, the U.S. sent a, a large team over to Pyongyang in the weeks leading up to the summit, uh, not just with diplomats, but with nuclear experts, technical experts, to try to work out some of the details about what kind of agreement they could have, because the bar for the second summit was very different than the first summit. The first summit was historic. It was a chance to sort of say, we're going to have a fresh start. We're going to try something different. It's risky, but hey, look, this, it's, it's sort of the, as, you know, President Trump uh, likes the big show, um, so it was the big reveal. Uh, but it was a chance to sort of set some, you know, aspirations, I guess. And that may be sort of a, a low, you know, a, sort of a minor thing you might think uh, in, in trying to get down to the details here. But on the second summit, everybody, uh, I think on both sides, knew they had to come away with some sort of uh, deta more detailed um, agreement. And what you saw leading up, though, was that the North Koreans, from what we understand from the U.S. side, um, did not want to really engage. Um, they were not going to engage. In North Korea, there's one decision maker. Um, I think on the U.S. side, there was a sense that, you know, the President Trump wanted to get this done, but uh, the U.S. came away a bit frustrated leading up to Hanoi. And I think once you got to the table, the question was, the U.S. side was suggesting maybe we will consider some sort of um, incremental deal, smaller deal, rather than uh, demanding that the North get rid of in their entire 
uh, weapon system before any kind of sanctions relief happened. Maybe there was some intermediate step. There was a signal from Steve Began. He gave a speech at Stanford just in the days leading up to the summit that, that maybe the U.S. Would, would consider it. Uh, but once we got into the room, um, it, it appeared that the U.S. took a harder line. And John Bolton was at the table, despite his long history of uh, being skeptical of the talks. Uh, he may have had some influence. Uh, and President Trump uh, did not want to go for that smaller deal. I think both sides, in the end, both leaders, because this is a leader-to-leader -leader sort of process we've seen, both thought they could maybe get the better of the other. And I think Kim Jong-un may be reading some of the U.S. coverage that the president was desperate for a deal to show a win uh, on his broader agenda as he was leading into an election, re-election campaign. Thought he could convince the president to take some smaller deal to show progress and come away with, with some sort of big announcement. I think President Trump felt, you know, his, he he thinks he's the ultimate deal maker and that he could force Kim Jong Un to to buy into his bigger vision. You know, if you if you watch this to sum up, the president talks a lot about uh, economic investments. You know, great beaches. This is the great prime <laughs> real estate. You know, he's, he's putting on that real estate cap, uh, and he talks about, you know, they're in between China and Japan and, and Korea. Uh, beachfront, you know, so, but I don't know that Kim Jong-un is thinking in those terms yet. So, uh, to me, you know, a third summit seems almost impossible to imagine. Uh, they're talking about maybe even somehow doing it when President Trump goes to uh, Japan and, and South Korea at the end of this month, some sort of meeting in, maybe in the DMZ. Uh, you know, I don't, it seems like a recipe for failure. Other than Trump is such a wild card, maybe he would go for some sort of uh, smaller deal. I'd like to remind the audience that you can tweet questions to us uh, using the hashtag postlive. And I'll pose them later to our panel uh, if you send them into us now or, or as they occur to you. Uh, Victor, do you agree with uh, uh, David's take on what uh, happened in uh, Hanoi? And also, what, what about the reports that followed that, which said that uh, two of the negotiators, one, uh, they're sketchy reports that one had been actually executed and the other had been sentenced to hard labor, which was a, certainly a measure of the success of the summit, um, if true. <laughs> but uh, if not, uh, what, what are we to make of those now and what do, what do those tell us about? Uh, the arc we're on here? Um, so um, I think probably Hanoi was the first time in the North Korean leader's life, as chronicled by Anna, that anybody had ever said no to him. Mm. So he couldn't have been happy on that 60-hour train ride back to, uh, from Vietnam back to Pyongyang. And these two poor guys who were uh, his, uh, you know, basically his envoys in the run-up to the summit, I imagine were probably sitting in the back of the train in the bathroom somewhere, you know, <laughs> trying not to be noticed. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that because of the failure that they did undergo some sort of re-education, if you will. And uh, it looks like the ball in that sense has been passed to the foreign ministry, um, the foreign minister and then uh, the first vice foreign minister, who was one of the negotiators during the six party talks. So we know these people well. <clears throat> I mean, that's good in a sense because they are more diplomatic. I, you know, my understanding is that the conversations with some of these other folks, the ones that you mentioned, mm -hmm. it's just not very good. They're like the worst dogmatic communists you can imagine. Um, um, and these other folks are more experienced in it. They speak English. Some, you, you can communicate with them. You don't always have to use an interpreter. So I think there's some benefits to that. But the problem remains the same, which is the one that David outlined and the reason Hanoi failed is that in the end, um, uh, a small deal or intermediate steps are possible if we had any confidence that the North Koreans under this leadership is willing to commit to really giving up all their weapons and delivery systems for entry into the international community. And there are many in the international community that are waiting to welcome them, um, you know, inc including countries in the region, not just China, but also Japan, South Korea, international institutions. But in the end, this is a program that they have had and have been developing for over half a century. 
devoting the majority of their national resources. And it's very difficult for me to imagine they're going to give that all up for the economic benefits that are being promised to them. They may be willing to give up some of it, um, the parts they don't need, but I don't think they're willing to give up the mainstay of their, of their program, and that, that's the problem. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, Carol, while we're on this roller coaster ride, so are the Japanese and uh, our allies in South Korea. How are they hanging on? Well, President Moon, uh, both, both Japan and South Korea had offered to help, uh, help mediate or work in some way to get negotiations started again, but President Moon said earlier this week that that doesn't appear to be necessary to have any third-party intervention. You know, obviously South Korea would like to have improved relations with North, and it already does, and Japan is much more wary. Uh, about North Korea's intentions, but even more than that, what it wants to do is be on the same page as the United States. So it's willing to go along with it. Uh, there has been some talk that, you know, you, well, Prime Minister Abe has said he's willing to have a summit with Chairman Kim. And uh, when both Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and President Trump are in uh, are in Japan for the G20. They are expected to have talks with Abe on the sidelines about this, and they will both be in Seoul and will be talking about this. Everybody, every party involved here seems to have some sort of motivation for this to go forward and not to collapse. Except perhaps in some parts of the Trump administration. David, talk a little bit about the continuing or what appears to be a, something of a gap between uh, the National Security Advisor and the President on this issue. The gap, but, yeah, sorry. Well, it's yeah. not the only place, but this is seems Not the only important. place. You know, leading up to Hanoi, people were looking for signals whether, w what exactly interagency process, which sounds like a boring phrase, but for the, for, the, for the Trump administration to be on, what page were they on? What did they want out of the second summit? And uh, I mentioned this speech by Steve Began, who's the lead negotiator of the State Department, uh, where he signaled, um, you know, that uh, the U.S. had some idea of, of what steps they'd like to, to take for a potential smaller deal. Uh, but from my reporting, uh, there was, you know, a meeting of, of all the top officials, not just the National Security Advisor John Bolton, who's had a long career of, of naysaying and any kind of engagement with the North, thinking it's not, it's a fool's errand. Uh, but beyond him, that it was, there was members of the State Department and Secretary Pompeo, members of the Pentagon, and almost around the table, uh, there was a sense that uh, they that things were not going well, that they were concerned the president might go too quickly into a deal, that they were skeptical of where this process was and what the North was offering, uh, and that they were concerned about what would happen in Hanoi, even, uh, and that the president would jump at a deal uh, because of this sort of political calculation that would help him here at home um, sell this agenda that he's doing something no one else had done. I mean, this is one of the big motivating factors that, if people recall President Obama in their first and only meeting after the election, uh, said one of the highest or the highest the national security priority would be North Korea. Um, that said, you know, after this summit failed in Hanoi, um, I, you know, called around to folks on, on the Hill and others who were talking to the folks in the administration, folks at uh, think tanks, uh, and the message they were getting was, you know, from what I understood was that members of the administration were coming and briefing and saying, we all doubted this thing, and now the president sees what we saw, or what we know, is that Kim's not, you know, Kim's not going to do this, and, you know, now he understands. Do, does he understand? Yesterday he said, uh, going out to the South Lawn uh, before his trip to Iowa, which I was on with him, that he had a new letter, a uh, new big, beautiful letter from Kim Jong-un. So we, we looked, we're back to the love letters. 
Um, I don't know who delivered that one, given that uh, Kim Yong-chol, who was the guy who came with the big lottery check-sized envelope uh, ahead of the Singapore summit, uh, to the visit the Oval is one of the guys who was said to be in the re-education program. Uh, but somehow the president has his new letter. Uh, we don't know what it is. We've seen some of the old letters. He, they posted, had released one, a lot of flowery language, Your Excellency, Your Highness, um, Epochal Peace. I love the, 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 the words that uh, the North used. I might incorporate some of that in my writing. But, um, the, but you know, the, uh, they're very flowery, and they play to Trump's ego. And I think, um, you know, maybe good. I mean, as Anna said, we, you know, people would like to see dialogue, would like to see progress. So, um, you know, it's still, going, it's still ongoing, the, the, the idea that they want to reengage. The, the big question is, what, what are they going to talk about? The, the issues are the same. I, you know, I cover immigration too. It's like how much enforcement, how much legalization of, of undocumented, that balance, it's the same balance here. How much they're going to give up their weapons, how much, uh, it, you know, are, are we going to release the sanctions? You know, Carol, there is a long tradition in American politics and presidents of um, individual commanders in chief saying, uh, I know what the geopolitics are, I know what the diplomats and experts are saying, but I'm very good at personal diplomacy and I'm going to work my magic on this case or on that leader. Have we seen uh, President Trump apply this template elsewhere and uh, with any success? <coughs> elsewhere with any success? Well, he, has, he just recently suggested that he would be willing to hold negotiations uh, with the president of Iran. Uh, it is not clear that that will ever happen. Iran doesn't seem to be biting, so he's, he's trying that. Uh, but I don't know that it has worked anywhere as successfully for lack of a better term, as it appears to have with North Korea, because there seem to be some, I won't say similarities, but the, the two leaders seem to be able to forge a relationship of some kind that seems to mesh with each other, and we haven't seen that, that work with this administration. Uh, I mean, I do think that the situation sort of underscores the difficulty of the way this administration, this president, has sort of upended the process. Normally, you would have a bunch of lower-level diplomats from the United States and North Korea sitting down and hammering out all of the all of the details, and then the presidents, the leaders, would get together and they would shake hands and bless it. That that always has worked in the past, and this has been upended. Uh, there seems to be at least a slight shift to be at least incorporating some of the more traditional ways of doing things. Let me turn it around since that moment that David was talking about where President Obama really did con leave the Korean portfolio at the top of the pile when President Trump, President-elect Trump came to see him. If we, with two years hindsight, are we, is it perhaps our tensions less now than they were then? Would you all say they were, or greater? I was gonna ask, start with you, Victor. Um, so they are, they are less in the sense that, um, you know, Trump has created this personal diplomacy with the North Korean leader. He goes out of his way to defend him, his intentions in public. Mm -hmm. That has certainly taken down the temperature since 2017. And it's true. The only way we're going to ever get a deal with North Korea is you've got to talk to the leader because he's the only one who, who makes a decision. Having said that, so we are off the war track that we were in 2017. Having said that, there, have, there are substantive increases in North Korea's capabilities over the last three, four years. I mean, they were even doing things in the aftermath of the Singapore summit mm -hmm. in terms of maintenance of missile facilities and who knows what they're doing on uranium enrichment and amassing uh, weapons. There was a report that just came out uh, by a Japanese think tank that says North Korea has up to 30 
warheads in their stockpile now, an increase of some 33%. So, um, so the, over, the temperature has gone down, um, but at the same time, the problem has festered. It has gotten much worse. And, and maybe we should talk a little bit uh, before we wrap up about just what denuclearization might mean, how we would define it, what we might be satisfied with, what we should think about when we use, because that's what the, the goal seems to be. So if, uh, if you were going to define it, Victor, so you know, I, how, where thank were you. <laughs> Thank you for asking the question, because there is a definition. I mean, there's a lot of talk about we don't agree on a definition of de There is a definition of denuclearization. The North Koreans agreed to it in 2005. It is in writing, and it's that the North Koreans will abandon, quote, the North Koreans will abandon all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs, meaning not just the plutonium program, but the uranium program, enrichment, centrifuge, everything. That was agreed to in 2005 and 2007 in front of all the members of the six-party talks. So they have, an agree they have agreed to a definition. I mean, the problem is Trump thinks he can do it his own way, so he's starting all over again, recreating the wheel and trying to come up, you know, agree on a definition, which is, of course, perfect for the North Koreans because they would like to shave it down from what they agreed to in 2005, 2006. I mean, if you saw in the first Singapore summit that came away and Trump gave the, signed the big document, if you recall, when Kim Jong-un had to have a special pen because his, his aides concerned that there would be poison on the pen. But he, right. they, they signed this document, and Trump signed it in really big letters, but he held it up, and photographers quickly shot it, and you could see it was four bullet points, you know? And there was no definition. There is no definition for this administration, despite all the work that past administrations have done to try to define it, and that's the problem. And, you know, I think there's also a question uh, in Hanoi of whether the U.S. asked beyond uh, ballistic uh, missiles and nuclear weapons uh, for the North to abandon chemical and biological weapons. So a lot of things are on the table. And, uh, you know, as they say, nothing's agreed on until everything's agreed on. Well, nothing is definitely agreed on. Carol, you get the Twitter question from Hunter, which asks, which side will make concessions first? I know it's impossible to know, but what does your crystal ball tell you? Well, first... <laughs> uh, is I I cannot I can't say who will do it first. My guess if if they decide to go with these the normal way of things, they will find a way to do it more or less simultaneously. I think it's clear both sides are going to have to make concessions, including the United States. Uh, many people think the United States is going to have to le learn to live with some degree of a nuclear program that North Korea has. Other people say no, it's all about sanctions. Uh, but it's clear the United States is going to have to make some tough concessions if it wants to ever have a chance at an agreement uh, with mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un. Perhaps in the way it defines nuclearization. Per perhaps. It would not be the first time that they shifted definitions as a way of finding a way out of a diplomatic morass. Before I go to my last question, I want to ask David, while we still have him, so tell us how you got um, Kim Jong-un to say what he said in the final epigram of... I was... I was uh, joking that in my tombstone, I'll say, he shouted a question to Kim Jong-un. Where, well, <laughs> here lies set, set a man. The, set the stage yeah. Where are you? So, uh, so I wrote a piece for <laughs> WashingtonPost.com if you want the full, I'd say our time's running out, the full story behind the story. But uh, so, you know, I was in the, in the White House pool, which meant I was one of the 13 people uh, in, during that uh, Hanoi summit uh, at the hotel um, who was let into certain meetings to get the photo op because all the press corps would like to go in, but that would be unwieldy, so we would go in. Um, that we traditionally do wait for the leaders to make some remarks or do what they're going to do on the photo op and then generally shout out questions of President Trump. Um, the day before, the different pool members had shouted out uh, during a, a dinner and other places. Um, the White House had gotten a little bit irritated. Uh, they were shouting out about Mueller for Trump and also some to Kim Jong-un. It was not clear what the White House uh, was the most irritated uh, about or whether they were, 
the North Koreans had objected to that, that scene. White House had tried to block some reporters from getting into the, neck, uh, the dinner that night. Uh, they allowed us all in to this uh, first photo op, and we had sort of discussed among ourselves our strategy uh, and that we wanted to go for it with Kim Jong-un. And as soon as you know, the, the, the pleasantries um, ended, uh, people started shouting, my colleagues started shouting to President Trump, and I had sort of aligned myself on the side of the room of, with Kim. And as soon as the president stopped talking, I just, I was trying to make eye contact the whole time so he could definitely sense me and that I would shout out, so I shouted. Uh, and I wasn't sure what would happen, but uh, as I wrote in this piece, I said, you know, I wanted to not start, ask, start with, you know, why do you do hard labor camps and why are you brutal to your people? I didn't know that I would get the response. I mean, I'm not trying not to be tough here, but, uh, but I did say, I said, you know, let's keep it on the deal, right? The deal. What the, I said, are you confident you're going to get a deal? And as he looked at me, I kind of gave a thumbs up. And I, as I wrote in the piece, I didn't want to get mistaken for being chummy with a dictator, a brutal dictator. But uh, I was trying to say, you know, sort of deal. Are you, are you, are you confident? Are you confident? And, uh, and that's when he gave the quote. I, I, I kind of recognized I had a shot when it was interesting. If you look at the video of it, you can hear my voice come in. Trump, both. Uh, both uh, leaders have their own interpreter, um, you know, assigned by their government. And you see Trump's interpreter lean over and speak in Korean to Kim. And I don't know if she was taking the initiative or her role is, it struck me that her role might be any English spoken question or thing is then translated by the, because she's Trump's translator and he's speaking English, he would translate into Korean. I don't know what the protocol is. I'd like to know. I'd actually like to find her. Uh, because she leans over and the way she talks to him and explains what's happening. Um, it makes it more awkward for him not to answer. And I don't know what his calculation, what his motivation was, but he did answer. And then we were quickly ushered out by the, by the press and, and we sort of put that in the pool report. What was interesting is just to wrap up is that in the next spray, my colleagues then, we were all in bold and we started shouting more and we did end up asking about uh, labor camps, at which point uh, Kim tried to end the conversation a couple times. At one point, Trump was like, I want to hear the answer. Uh, and that was to whether they would open a liaison office in a USC liaison office in Pyongyang, and, and, and Kim didn't want to, his, his aides tried to wave it off, and then Trump said, I'd like to hear that. And then when they asked about the hard labor, I think, or something about the deal, uh, Kim finally said something in Korean about, um, you know, uh, uh, that's what we're here for. Like, give us a minute, you know, which is, I guess, fair. They want to try to maybe have a discussion before. Well, we have about a minute left, so I will end for all of you on David's question to Kim. Will there be a deal on nuclearization, however you, denuclearization, however you define it, by the end of the Trump presidency? Victor, you, maybe you should go first. Um, I think there could be one, but it would be an imperfect deal that does not really address the full threat from North Korea. Carol? I think there's certainly the possibility of an interim deal, uh, not a final deal, but I would not be the least bit surprised if there's none. And now answer your own question, Dave. Depends on how long you define the Trump presidency. Uh, are we talking a year and a half? Or are we talking five and a half years? Um, I think one thing to watch over the next you know, several months, did North Koreans set a deadline for the end of this year for these talks to, to be, keep going or and progress be made or nothing's going to happen? We're in crunch time here. Also, electoral politics, if Trump needs uh, a big moment, you know, look for something, look for maybe a play uh, on the peninsula. Well, we don't have time for a full session on the impact of Korean politics on American politics. So I'm sure we could get you to stay for it. Uh, that's all the time we have for this. To watch the full playback and highlights from this morning's session, uh, please visit uh, wapo.backslash-postlive uh, uh, and follow uh, hashtag postlive on Twitter for future updates. And thank you, guys, and thank you. Carol, thank you. Uh, for your help this morning. And thank every, all of you for joining us this morning. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.